Let's pray, you guys. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we come before you now, Lord. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness and your and your love towards us, Lord. We don't deserve your grace every day. Lord, above ground is just um, amazing uh, grace that you show to us in our lives, Lord. And uh, not only, Father, do you give us your grace, not only do you give us um, grace that, Father, we we did not merit, Lord, but you overcome our demerit. Lord, we are greatly indebted because of our sin. And, Lord, our sins are before you every day, Lord, and you see our hearts. And yet, at the same time, Father, we recognize how compassionate and gracious that you are. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord. Help us to study your word and to show ourselves approved as workmen that do not need to be ashamed. We thank you, and Father, we bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Okay, well, let's see here. Making sure that's up and that's up. All right, so um, we're going to keep looking at the doctrine of the atonement, and today I want to focus on, as we study more of the atonement, I want to study the nature of the atonement. The nature of the atonement. And when we talk about the nature of the atonement, we're, ask, we're talking about the different facets. You might need to let the sound guys know to turn this on. Um, but we're talking about just different aspects of the work of Christ. So when we're asking about the nature of the atonement, we're actually talking about the work of Christ. And when we talk about the work of Christ, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? Are we talking about well, what kind of job did Jesus have while he was here? <laughs> right? Okay, what he did on the cross for us? I would say that's part of it. Uh, what else do we what else do we mean when we talk about the work of Christ? Anybody else? It, when Jesus came, did uh, did all that he did was go on the cross? No. Oh, he preached. Went on. Right, so he, he preached. Disciples, training people. Right. So he did more than just die on the cross, right? Yes, sir. He also lived a life uh, perfectly according to God's law, never sinning, never wavering in any aspect. That's right. And so basically, what we've what we've come to now is these two aspects of what is commonly talked about with reference to the work of Christ, and we're dealing with Jesus' obedience. And his, it's, it's known as his active, right? And his passive obedience. His active and his passive obedience. That's very important because, I mean, if you think about it, if all that Jesus came into the world to do was to die for sinners on the cross then why didn't he die as soon as he was born, <laughs> right? Uh, why did he need to live 33 years, right? Why did, why did he have to get baptized? Why did he have to go preach? Why did he have to uh, teach the disciples? Why did he have to start the church? Why did he have to do all of these things that he's doing, right? Why did he have to fight with the Pharisees, right? Why couldn't he just be born as a baby and somebody took him and sacrificed him, essentially, as the Lamb of God, uh, because, yes, ma'am? I was going to say because you had to be put in the 
He had to be put to the test? That's right. That's absolutely right. Because what do we see immediately after, like in the Gospels, you're reading the Gospels, what's one of the very first things that you see in the Gospels? He's tested in the wilderness. He's tempted in the wilderness. And that's and that is the reason for that, John, you know, is because yeah, you do. Because because Jesus is is fulfilling his role as the second Adam. Right? And so just like Adam and Eve were tempted in the wilderness, or tempted rather in the garden, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness as the second Adam. So you have a repetition of what happened in Eden, and now what's happening in the life of Jesus. So Jesus is basically, uh, Jesus is basically like uh, uh, a second representative, right? And exactly what Adam went through, Jesus had to go through. He had to go through temptation. He got. He had to go through testing. And we talked about this before, but that Jesus's um, Jesus's testing in the wilderness was much more severe than what happened to Adam. Adam was in paradise. Adam was in a garden. Adam was with animals that were peaceful, vegetarian. They were, you know, uh, uh, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! They they didn't bite him, right? But Mark says in Mark chapter one, I think it's in verse thirteen, it says very specifically that Jesus was among the wild beasts. So to specify that Jesus was in a much more hostile environment when he underwent his temptation. Very interesting detail. I mean, you think about it. These gospel writers, they only have so much paper, right? And some have pointed out papyri was very expensive in those days. And so for them to include a detail like that, Jesus was with the wild beasts, kind of, begs, kind of makes you wonder, why did Mark use up the space to give us that detail, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, was it really necessary? Yes, because we can contrast him with Adam uh, in, a, in, a, in a better way. So when we talk about the atonement, I mean, obviously we are talking about what it means to make a sacrifice, what it means to shed blood, what does the shedding of blood represent? And let me ask you guys that, because our hope, I mean, we don't get up tomorrow if this is not true. Right? We have no hope. We have no future. We have no reason to live. Right? Um, we, 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 literally, we can't go one more day without this. So what does the blood accomplish? Let me ask you all that. What does the blood accomplish? Okay. Okay, so it, it, it accomplishes propitiation. It satisfies the wrath of God, right? It takes away the anger of God because God is furiously angry at sinners all day long, it says. He's angry with the wicked all day long. Why? Because they've broken his holy laws. So someone has to take away the wrath of God, remove the anger of God, and, ju- and satisfy that justice, and that's exactly what the blood does. The blood is an offering to God, right? That it, 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 it satisfies his justice. So in other words, the blood represents proof that a sacrifice has taken place and that the, the justice of God has been met. See that? Right? What, so what else does the shedding of blood do? If we shed your blood here today, we won't. Relax. <clears throat> uh, 
and we, we, we let all your blood shed out, what would happen to you? You would die. So the shedding of blood was the proof that a life had been given. And that's why the shedding of blood was shown to God. It was presented to God, right? Is God omniscient? He knows everything? Does he, does he see the blood before the, the priest would present it? <laughs> yes, he saw it, right? We don't need to go actually show it to him physically. In other words, it is a symbol for us more than anything, right? It is a symbol that we, we come to the, the, the settled understanding, okay, uh, this is demonstrating once and for all to me and to everyone that a life has been given. And therefore, the shedding of blood is very, 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 very important. The other thing, as Tanya mentioned with propitiation, is that the wrath of God has been satisfied. Isn't this correct? Uh, how many of you saw the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay. Um, do you remember what happened to Aslan? Isn't that how you pronounce the lion's name? What happened to him? He was sacrificed on the stone table. He was sacrificed on the stone table. Man, I'm, I'm glad you're here because I wouldn't have been able to you know, talk. Are you really? And so who performed the sacrifice in the Chronicles of Narnia? Huh? The witch. The witch. Does she have a name? Goddess. You are, you are a Narnia buff. <laughs> she performs the sacrifice. Now who does she... The allegory of what C.S. Lewis is doing there. Who does the witch represent? The the enemies of 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 Christ, right? But specifically, who does the witch represent? Satan. Satan. Is what C.S. Lewis did in the Chronicles of Narnia a, a biblical depiction of what happens in the Bible to Christ? Absolutely not. Satan does not kill Jesus. Right? It is not the payment that was given. Remember, Aslan is handed over to the witch as a payment so that others can go free. That could not be more false and more wrong because Satan is not the one who is propitiated. Jesus was not satisfying the wrath of Satan, he was not paying Satan a ransom price. Right? The atonement has everything to do with propitiating God. And so, um, cool movie, but don't trust the theology there, okay? Um, okay, let's go on to talk about Jesus' act of obedience, the things that Jesus did in his life. And uh, this is wonderful for us because it means that Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. I mean... <clears throat> Just think about our need for this, right? Think about our need for someone to live a perfect life in our place, right? Just, just look back at your track record this week, <laughs> right? Do you need someone to live in your place <laughs> before God, right? Uh, yes, uh, because we cannot live a perfect life before God. We look back at our track record and we look and we see a, a, a path that is stained with sin and iniquity and failure and all of these uh, transgressions that we have committed, and we know absolutely for certain we need somebody to live in our place. 
right? And that's why Jesus came, and that's why he lived, and that's why he did the things that he did, so that the righteousness that you get upon conversion is not on the basis of your deeds, right? Because then you would have no righteousness, right? Um, am I among sinners today? Yeah. Amen. That's why. Let's. Amen. Come on. <laughs> right? We're all sinners, and we know it. And we know that we cannot, as much as we try, and we can have effort, and we can do it, and we can we can strive and strive and strive, and we will never achieve the perfection that God requires. As Leviticus says, "Be holy, even as I, the Lord God, am holy." Can you do that? I can't. So we need somebody to live. Turn to Philippians chapter three, just maybe to see, uh, to see this, you know, crystal clear here for us. Philippians chapter three. I mean, this really is um, a remarkable passage of scripture to understand that we need a perfect life. We need a perfect obedience. A perfect righteousness. Because we don't have any, and even an individual like the Apostle Paul, who, prior to Christ, was known as Saul, who was a Pharisee. He wasn't just any Pharisee. According to Galatians chapter 1, the, uh, Saul was actually a unique Pharisee. He excelled beyond his contemporaries. He was so righteous in the man-centered sense of the word. He, he was... Um, he was extremely zealous. That's what Paul said. He said he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Uh, basically, he was a sold-out Pharisee. You looked into his life, and you would see every area of his life was about religious duty. right? But this pious man, <laughs> apparently, recognized his own bankruptcy before God. Who does Jesus come for? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? If you've never acknowledged your bankrupt nature in the presence of God, if you've never acknowledged that you are morally bankrupt in the eyes of God, if you try to continue to defend yourself and try to put things up there, well, I, I go to church or I try to, I try to read the Bible or I try to pray. If you're trying to justify yourself and you're not acknowledging your bankrupt condition in the sight of a holy God, well then, you will not be blessed. <laughs> because as Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if people continue to justify themselves and through self-righteousness, well then, Jesus would essentially say then, then his sacrifice has really uh, nothing to do with them. Because you have to acknowledge your sin and your misery in the sight of a holy God before you will repent. Uh, but here we are in Philippians chapter 3, and we know that the Apostle Paul gives his pedigree, right? He gives his pedigree, and beginning in verse 4, he says, I, he says, I myself have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. The reason he pointed that out is why. Why did he say, as to the law, a Pharisee? Anybody know the reason why he said that? Just 
It, yes, uh, but more specifically, it's because the Pharisees were the strict sect of Judaism. So he wanted to, he's, he's piling on the attributes here. He, didn't, I, uh, he says, he didn't just obey the law, he was a Pharisee. <laughs> so the Sadducees were considered more liberal. The Pharisees were strict. I mean, down to the very jot and tittle. You know, they'd be the equivalent of modern-day fundamentalists. You know, they were, <laughs> right? So... He's a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You want greater proof of somebody's religious devotion? Are they willing to kill for it? Paul was. He says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, when you looked at the, what the Pharisees and people required of the law, apparently Paul could not be blamed for anything. He kept everything externally that was required of him. Right? How many people live this pharisaical life? They go to church. They read their Bible. Right? They, they, they pray. Right? They've gone to the altar call. They've done these external things. They've been baptized. Right? But inwardly, there still was something lacking uh, for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, that, that, is, that is to say, whatever he thought was gain. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He develops this argument, the logic of this. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so it is of infinite worth, of infinite value to know Christ Jesus, our Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. In other words, for the Apostle Paul, he lost everything. He lost everything. One of the requirements of a Pharisee is that he be married. So some scholars have actually theorized that the Apostle Paul was probably married and maybe lost his wife due to knowing Christ. That may be one of his losses. He lost his wife. He lost his family. Not Maybe not children, but... Uh, he lost, you know, his heritage. Uh, we don't know if Paul was married or not. Um, there's just no historical evidence for it at all. Um, but verse 9 says this. This is, the, this is the grand crescendo of it all right here. That I, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That is through law keeping, right? He's saying... This is the whole point of it all. The righteousness that I have, I don't, you can't get it through law keeping. No matter how hard you try, it is, the righteousness will never become enough. And so he says, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so by faith, what Paul is saying here, it says by faith you are given, so Technically speaking, theologians would call this imputation, right? You are imputed with the righteousness of Christ, which means it is credited under your account, right? You are reckoned, legizomai, it's like a calculating term. You are reckoned righteous in the sight of God. It is a calculation process. It means you have enough righteousness to declare yourself morally righteous in the sight of God. Incredible. Right? Because Paul is saying, we don't have that in and of ourselves. But because of Christ, God looks upon us and makes the calculation that you are righteous enough. 
think about that. Right? I mean, this is really the soul of the gospel, and this is why Jesus had to live a perfect life, not just die a perfect death, but to live a perfect life, uh, you know, some would say he earned our righteousness. He earned it, right? Um, in a sense, we are saved by works. Ever thought about that? In a sense, you are saved by works. Not your works, but the works of Christ. Yes, sir. I, I wanted to, uh, I guess, tie in uh, Matthew, Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you, unless you, your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Excellent. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just to show again. The righteousness that Christ gives us, or better yet even, the righteousness that Jesus becomes for us. Right? What he did, he did not do for himself. Right? Isn't this remarkable, you guys? Jesus, when he lived and walked the earth and did what he did and got baptized and told, uh, he told uh, John the Baptist, you know, baptize me in order to fulfill all righteousness. He did all of those things, not for himself. Jesus did not need to be justified. Jesus did not lack righteousness. So everything that he did, he did for us. He did for us. Uh, somebody want to read that for us? 1 Corinthians 1.30. Anybody there yet? 1 Corinthians 1.30. K-Dub, you're there? And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, be who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's right. Amen. Amen. you you got to read 31, right? I mean, it's just, you got it. <laughs> But that's, but look at that. He became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Think about these things. All of these things Jesus does not need, right? He doesn't need wisdom. He doesn't need righteousness. He doesn't need sanctification. He doesn't need redemption, right? But through his perfect act of obedience, he becomes these things for us because we need every single one of these things. We need wisdom from God. We are stupid. We are spiritually stupid. Our minds are depraved, fallen, futile, frustrated. The Bible says we stand opposed to ourselves. We are under self-deception, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We suppress the truth. We are in a state of spiritual stupor before Christ awakens us and gives us wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Yeah, so before that, you ain't got no wisdom. <laughs> you can have a PhD in the sight of God. You are as dumb as a doornail. Because it has nothing to do, true wisdom has nothing to do with whether or not you can understand physics. True wisdom has to do with whether or not you can understand God and what he's done for you in the cross. Mm -hmm. True wisdom has to do with whether or not you can unlock the mystery of the cross. Because prior to Christ, the Bible says, well, actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it begins this way. Prior to Christ, people only see the cross as foolishness, moros, 
where we get the word moron, right? They only see folly in the cross. Give my life for that. Live for that, right? Submit to that. Follow that. Ridiculous. That is what man in his natural state believes about the cross. So he, he's unaided by the Spirit, and therefore he is incapable, incapable of seeing the wisdom of the cross. So Jesus did not need to die. He, needed, he didn't just need to die, pardon me. He also needed to live. He also needed to live. If Jesus only needed to die, he would have immediately been put to death at birth, but his life was essential just as essential as his death. His life is, de- is that essential. He needed to fulfill the law. Turn with me to Romans 10, 4. Another reason why Jesus had to, why we need Jesus' active obedience also has to do with the nature of revelation and the nature of redemption. Romans chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 4. Romans 10, 4. Real, really... That's really the verse that, that really says it all, doesn't it? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's amazing. Because it, it doesn't, uh, when it says Christ is the end of the law, it does not mean Christ uh, renders us lawless so that we become antinomians running around living lawless lives. Of course not. But what it's saying here is that essentially we are no longer bound to try to live according to the dictates and the requirements of the law so as to justify ourselves, okay? We're, we're, never, we're no longer bound to that. The, and on top of that, not only that, but when he says Christ is the end of the law, what it's saying is that, the, that, that Christ has made the law reach its intended goal. So the end, the word end here, telos, means goal. So what does that tell us about the law? What does that tell us about when God gave Moses the law? He gave him a law that needed fulfillment. Like Calvin said, I was preaching last week about this, remember? Calvin said, without Christ, the shadows and the figures and the types and everything contained in the law is nothing but sport. What he means by that is we're just going through motions. If there's no point to this, right? If there's no end goal, if there's no fulfillment, no reality, then God is just asking us to do what? He's just asking us to to engage in symbolism, endless symbolism. But what this passage tells us is that Jesus is the reality, the fulfillment of the law. The only way that he could be the the end of the law is that if he were to fulfill the law, which, of course, he does. I'll give you another another example of this. Look at Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. This is a very interesting, it's kind of a parallel text. How often have we heard that Galatians is like a mini Romans, Right? It is. Galatians is like a mini Romans. Um, Let's see here. Verses 4 and 5. Because I want you to pay attention to the parallel here. Right? It says, But when the fullness of the time came, 
God, so see that, the fullness, anytime you're looking at that type of language, the fullness of, the, you get ready, you're looking at fulfillment language here, right? So the fullness of the time came, God sent, his, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's the phrase you should underline. Now, I don't underline in my Bible, but you are free to desecrate yours. <laughs> no, that's a joke. Don't take it. The first time I met my wife, we were sitting in church, and, uh, you know, I didn't know her from Adam or Eve or whatever, but I didn't know her at all. And I looked over, and I saw her Bible. Trish, you have that Bible on you right now? No. And it was... It was underlined, written, highlighted. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like, it opened up as like this kaleidoscope of color, you know. And uh, I just like, how could you do that to your Bible anyway? That affected me too because... That affected her. You got to watch out what you say in the church, you know. I meant it as a joke. I didn't make myself clear. You'll pay for that. I'm still paying for that. Okay. So that phrase there, under the law, so that, watch this, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So what is he saying there, right? That we might receive adoption as sons, right? So he's talking about people who are under the law in what respect? It means that they are under the obligation of the law. They are under the curse of the law. They're under the weight of the law, the requirement of the law. And so Jesus came and put himself under that, right? Go back to chapter 13. Now, you know this verse. Excuse me, uh, chapter 13. Galatians 3. Oh, I wish Galatians had 13 chapters. Galatians 3, verse 13, right? Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25. In order that Christ, that Christ Jesus, the, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What is the blessing of Abraham? Justification by faith alone. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's right. That's right. So this is what Jesus did. He, he freed us who were under the law. Right? under the obligation of the law, by putting himself under that law and fulfilling it perfectly in our place. Active obedience. Now let's talk about the passive obedience. Let's talk about the passive obedience of Christ. So what, when we talk about active obedience, we're concentrating on Jesus' life. Likewise, when we talk about his passive obedience, we are talking about his death. Okay? I hope you guys remember that as you, you know, Go to the restaurants today or go eat and just remember life and death, right? Active and passive. So passive obedience has to do with Jesus' perfect resignation under the pain of death, under the things that he suffered. And when you think about what he suffered, uh, even in his life he suffered, right? I mean, when you think about Jesus suffering for the first time, what do you think of? The cross. What's the first thing that Jesus ever suffered? Incarnation. <laughs> <laughs> Conception? <laughs> uh, 
Um, I have that too, uh, Gigi, but explain. Well, like Philippians 2 says, when he, like Philippians 2, whenever he left, okay. he set aside everything uh, to come. And Philippians 2, it's probably better. Let the Lord explain it than me explain it. It's a good point. Mm-hmm. Right? In Philippians 2, um, verse, starting in verse 6, yep. who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, i.e. slave, and being made in the likeness of man, God himself being made in the likeness of man. Being, go on and go on. Yeah, and being found in the appearance of man, as man, he humbled Himself. That's right. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Yeah. And those who are in heaven and on earth and under. That's magnificent, huh? Uh, so just, I mean, that to me is, is, well, and that's what the Word of God says. It's not just to me, but that's what the Word of God says. Amen. That's right. So that's my first thing that I put down here. His birth in humiliation. And you're emphasizing, right, uh, Philippians 2, which really has in mind, look at what Christ had. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped for, which means what? He already had it. He, it's, it is his by right. So he's not groping to be equal with God. He already is equal with God. This is the wonder of what you're looking at in Philippians, is that he who is equal with God emptied himself. And I think when we ask the question, what does it mean by that he emptied himself? I think it helps us, the verse that you read, taking on the form of a servant. So then what is the antithesis of that? He is king, right? So you have the one who is royal, right, majestic, crowned, enthroned, exalted, right, the one who is equal with God, that is what's emphasizing becoming a man, a servant, going all the way down, right? And in the first century, when you spoke of being a servant, it's hard for us, right? Do you have a servant? No. Do you have a servant? No. Do you have a servant? Indentured, indentured servitude, right? That's, that's right. Well, in the first century, many, many people had servants. And the lowest servant of the house would sit outside and wash visitors' feet as they came in, right? And in a sense, that is what Jesus is being depicted as becoming, that he became so low that he's just the servant outside on the porch washing people's feet. This is total, what they call divine condescension. You know what condescension means? You come down to someone's level. That's exactly what Jesus did. He came down to us. And that's how we're supposed to be impacted by what this is saying here, is woe the humility of Christ. So even in his life, there is passive obedience involved. There is a, there is a, a, a suffering that's happening here. Um, let me add a couple. Let me add one more thing here. So when we're talking about his active obedience, 
We're talking about the life that he lived, and there is a relationship to man that is essentially federal. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? That in his, his life, his act of obedience has to do with the relationship that he has with man in a federal sense. Anybody know what I mean by that? What's that? No. No, not, not. Legal. Legal, and in what way is it legal? Legal representation, right? He is representing us in his life, right? Who was our first legal federal representative? Adam. Adam. And so in his passive obedience, dealing with his death and the things that he suffered, we have a different relationship between, the, between Christ and man, and that has to do penal. So when theologians speak of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, what in the world are they talking about? What does the word penal mean? What does it come from? If something speaks of being penal, you are talking about paying a penalty. See that? So we deserved to pay the penalty. <laughs> right? Uh, the word vicarious means that Jesus stands in our place. He, he, he dies in our stead, our substitute. And when he becomes our substitute, he suffers death in a penal fashion, which means he receives the penalty. The penalty of what? The penalty of our sins, and even more importantly, the penalty of the law. Right? Just like uh, Galatians said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Right? There's the penal aspect of the death of Christ. There is the penalty that he is paying on the cross. The penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That is what you're looking at. How many of you have systematic theologies? How many of you own Millard Erickson? I just bought one, systematic theology. Is it Millard Erickson? Uh, yeah, I the green color, white color. Millard Erickson? I believe so. Oh, that's great. Look, Millard Erickson I has some... books about like... Millard Erickson has some good information, but you know what he does not have? He does not have penal substitutionary atonement. And that is very, very bad, folks. Penal substitutionary atonement is our life. It is the gospel. You exclude that, then you don't understand what took place at the cross. So Millard Erickson doesn't have it. Lewis Sperry Schaefer's uh, systematic theology out of Dallas he doesn't have it either. Um, Got to be careful. Well, they have they have other aspects of the death of Christ. They have a, a substitution, but they fail to mention the penal aspect. Mm -hmm. Gigi, I was going to ask, isn't it, it? There's a lot of uh, controversy going around too about um, uh, oh, was it Augustine or Augustine? Augustine. Augustine, yeah. Yeah. Not subscribing to penal substitutionary atonement. Historical theology is next. 
<laughs> no, I don't know. I, I can't. I don't know enough about it to speak about it. Okay. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. Because in yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, um, who was it? I think it was Lig Duncan, mm -hmm. who did a whole teaching on the fathers, uh, uh, the church fathers, going all the way up to Augustine, and he pointed out you can find every bad. You know, all sorts of problems with the fathers. I mean, you find all kinds of problematic issues. But one thing you don't find a lot of times is a denial. Mm -hmm. Is a denial of essential Christian doctrine. You know what I mean? So I'm wondering that about Augustine. Mm -hmm. Would you find a denial of penal substitutionary atonement? No. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. So I have to look into yeah. that. That's a good... Well, and like in Erickson's, do you, do you actually see a denial of it? No, you just don't see it. Yeah, the problem with him, though, is that he's not a church father. Yeah, he knows right, better. Exactly. He knows better. Yeah. His is purposeful. Mm -hmm. Whereas I, I think with Augustine is you have a primary thinker right. for the first time mm -hmm. formulating theology for the Christian church mm -hmm. on a systematic level. He's kinda, yeah. And he's trying to put things together, you know, for the first time, really. Because right. prior to Augustine, nobody wrote as much as Augustine. I mean, over four million words that man wrote. Called the centuries, first five centuries of establishment of the truth. What's that? Charles Fillon is a draft history church history called the first five centuries establishing the truth. It's, that's interesting. That's good. That's good. A lot of that's true because there's councils, there's Nicaea, there's, you know, those kinds of things. Um, okay, so let's go back to the passive uh, obedience of Christ, right? The things that he suffered, and of course, not just his birth, the humiliation of his birth, but also his childhood. I mean, think immediately after his birth, as a child, he immediately undergoes persecution and has to flee to Egypt, right? Uh, his temptation, Matthew chapter 4, immediately has to suffer under the, 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 the duress of, and here's the thing, guys, listen to this, direct temptation from Satan himself. No one in this room can say that you have been tempted by Satan himself. And Jesus had a personal encounter with Satan, right? Whatever form he took, it was enough so that he had a conversation with him, right? As if you would, face to face with the devil. And Jesus overcame him. But that's another aspect of his suffering. The other thing is, is his introduction into the world, his humble entry, right? Also in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. That is speaking strictly of his humanity. The word learn cannot apply to Jesus' deity, but it can apply to his humanity, okay? Folks, listen, as a toddler... Jesus needed to learn how to walk. Okay. Don't have a Gnostic idea in your mind of a glorified baby Jesus walking around the earth, right, performing miracles out of clay doves, and, you know, they have all these folklore stories. No, he was fully man. So as a baby, he had to be cared for. Think about the humility of that. The God-man coming to this earth, he needed to be breastfed. He needed to be, he needed his diapers changed. He needed to be bathed. He needed to be clothed. He needed somebody to walk him to school. He was a man, a real human person. 
He didn't sidestep that. He willfully submitted himself to what it, mean, what it meant to be fully human in every sense of the word, except for sin. Amen. Except for sin. Just staggering. A staggering humility. In a real sense, I mean, you go to his, you go to his arrest, you go to his betrayal, you go to the mockery that he suffered, you go to the Gethsemane hour, you go to his beatings that he underwent prior to the crucifixion, the crown of thorns, you think of all of that, and who can sum up the life of Jesus better than, than Isaiah? A man of sorrows. That is a summary of the, the life of Jesus. He was a man of sorrows, right? And he underwent that willfully for you and I who trust in him, right? And Peter, Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 3 that, that he underwent this type of suffering on our behalf, and it says he did not revile in return. He didn't lash out, never, not even once. When they pulled his beard, when they spat upon him, when they beat him and told him, prophesy to us, who is beating you? When they mocked him on the cross and said, you can raise other people from the dead, raise yourself, deliver yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from there. Think of the deep irony involved there, right? A complete and total blasphemous negation of the gospel. Take yourself off the cross. Talk about not knowing what they're doing. <laughs> what you basically are asking is, damn us all to hell. Because there is no salvation apart from the cross. Talk about man not knowing what he's saying. So Jesus underwent all of this for us, all of this. I mean, you can talk about his passive obedience in so many different ways. Of course, the pinnacle of this is that Jesus bore the wrath of God. That is the pinnacle of his passive obedience, the suffering that he underwent in receiving the, the, the forget about the wrath of man. I think Jesus would say, what man was doing to him and beating him and all of this was nothing. Nothing compared to having to bear the wrath of God. Right? When Jesus was in the garden trembling and vexed and troubled in his soul, he wasn't thinking primarily of, oh no, I'm going to get whipped. He was thinking primarily, oh no, I'm going to endure the wrath of the Father on behalf of us. So, I mean, <clears throat> I try not to turn these Sunday school lessons into a sermon, but how can you not? I mean, yes, ma'am. Do you think it's fair to even say that he would have been, it would have been even exaggerated, his, his um, emotions would have been exaggerated because he was not under the noetic effect of sin like we are, just the constant, you know, how it... Yeah. The noetic effects of sin being the effects of sin on the mind. Right. right. So because Jesus did not have a sinful mind, yeah. his mind was always and perfectly razor sharp, thinking correctly and rightly, right? Um, he was never confused or anything. So he understood exactly what was happening to him at all times. He never doubted himself. He understand the scriptures perfectly. So like when he was 12 years old in the temple. That's right. Yeah, he's ex <laughs> 12 years old in the temple teaching the theologians. Yeah. Do you think it would be fair to, 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 I don't want to go too far, but I mean, do you think it would be fair to, to, to say that maybe um, when he was enduring all these things that 
you would almost have to have a heightened sense of awareness if you're not under that effect. I, I, mean, I can roll with that. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't want to cross the line. I, what, I, what I'm saying pastor, is that, would you, and as the Bible said, he suffered more than any man. Yeah, so that's what he I He suffered more than any man. Fair? What is the story of Job about? Yeah. Is that there is someone more righteous than Job right. who suffered more than Job. Right. And whose suffering is more meaningful than Job's. Right. Because his suffering, i.e. Christ, mm -hmm. is redemptive. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, let's pray. We'll go to worship. Father, we can never truly understand the depth of the suffering of Christ. And yet, Lord, we can only cry out for mercy and grace as we see our own failure to live like Christ. As we see, Lord, the great depth of suffering and the perfect life that Jesus lived and the perfect example that he left behind. And yet, Lord, we fail you so miserably. And, Father, we... When we, when we fail you in this way, it's very easy for us to uh, just to lose all hope and to despair. It's easy for us to look at ourselves and be condemned. Uh, but Lord, when we look at Christ, we see one who tells us that there is no condemnation. And so we're grateful for his work. Thank you for his substitution. Thank you for his uh, dying and rising again. Lord, bless our worship today. Bless our church, Father. I pray that you really work work in heritage grace, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I want to bring my